Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Pastor Bailey is not here this morning. He is visiting uh, the church plant down in Evansville this morning. So uh, he asked me to continue on in Romans. And so we're going to pick up where he left off today with Romans chapter 2. 12, uh, verses 14 to 16. Now, before we get into that, though, uh, we have to do a little bit of uh, introduction, because the commands that are commanded to us in Romans 12, verses 14 to to 16, are world-changing commands. They're commands that change cultures, whole people groups, uh, but they all can also change, transform your home, your relationships with your husband or your wife, maybe with your brothers and sisters in your home. Um, but they all depend on something that comes before. There are commands that are very unnatural for us. They don't come naturally, and they depend on something that comes earlier in chapter 12 of Romans. Uh, In Romans 12, verse 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Each verse in our passage for today contains commands that are completely impossible unless you have been transformed by the renewing of your mind, unless you are being transformed, even today, by the renewing of your mind. So how does a mind get renewed? How is that possible? Is it something you're aware of when it's happening? My daughter Bree is taking middle school math, you know. I don't know if you remember taking math in middle school, but you're like clawing your way to comprehension, right? Is it like that? Is it like you're, you're working hard to figure out uh, the answer to the problem? Or does the renewal of your mind just require that you're in the right setting, you know, for that to happen? Maybe you're up before the kids are awake and you've got your coffee and you've got your Bible open. Is that when ren- the renewal of your mind happens? Maybe it requires breathing exercises. Or maybe some yoga. Or does it happen without you even realizing it? Is it something that God just zaps into you? Maybe even while you're asleep and you wake up and you just have a renewed mind. I'm, I'm pausing here and some of my examples are a little silly of course. But I'm pausing here because I'm convinced that we don't give attention or enough care to the renewal of our minds. I think instead that we are often very, very willing to simply be conformed to this world. So how does a mind actually get renewed according to Scripture? Well, first, it has to be said as a foundational starting point that it is God who renews our minds. In 1 Corinthians 2, uh, the Apostle Paul writes, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, 
but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And then skipping down, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. God has given us bodies, he's given us physical minds, but it's God who is required, who's needed. To, God needs to open up our minds to understand the truth. And so we have to start with, by asking God to renew our minds. <clears throat> but God has also given us tools for the renewing of our minds. And it's not godliness to ignore those tools or to fail to use them. And so what are those tools? Nothing, nothing earth-shattering here. These are the very obvious uh, a- answers to that question. Scripture, Scripture, God has given to us to read to contemplate, to think about, to meditate on. Prayer, God has called us, he has invited us to pray to him, right? And there's a lot of copies of that in the world. You know, you could even think of yoga or those breathing exercises that I mentioned earlier as, as, a, as, a, as, a, false, uh, as a false copy of going to God and, and turning your mind to God and praying to him speaking to a person who has invited you in a, to be in a relationship with him. Those are false copies of what God has called us to do, to read his word, to pray, to have our, our thoughts and our minds turn to things that matter, not just for what's going to happen today, but for eternity as well. And of course, good company, you know, helps us in, in terms of the renewal of our minds. Uh, if you are, if you have friends that that lead you and help you in uh, righteousness, versus friends that that drag you down, you know, and there are many good books out there that you can read that'll help you uh, in the renewal of your mind. Even dare I say it, music and movies, the entertainment, they can be helpful if they turn your mind to godly things and 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 help in the renewal of your mind. But that said, even as there are many tools that can be used by us as as our minds are renewed, uh, there are many things, obviously, that turn our minds away from God and and conform us to this world. Whether it comes through a screen or a book or a friendship with someone, we are commanded, obligated, to turn away from things that conform our minds to the, to the things of this world. And of course, I have to make a special mention of our screens. You know, our screens permeate our lives, you know, our phones, our TVs, computers. The filth that is on those screens, brothers and sisters, must be turned off. You cannot expect your mind to be renewed according to Scripture if you fill your mind with filth, okay? So, these commands that I'm going to speak about today depend as a starting point on the renewal of our minds. 
Now, what are the commands that he's given to us in these verses? Uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 14 to 16. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Let's pray as we get more into this. Father God, I do pray that you'd please help us not to be wise in our own estimation, even now as, we, as I preach and as we, as, as we listen. Father, help us to be humble, to receive your word humbly, and to grow in wisdom. And Father, we do confess that we depend entirely on your power and your spirit for the renewal of our minds. Help us to not be captivated by the things of this world and to not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, for starters, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. It's difficult to think of a command that is more contrary to human nature. Right? And cultures and people from the very beginning of time have allowed for cursing those who persecute you, right? It's like baked in. You know, you think of societies that depend for justice on honor killings or honor feuds, you know? All throughout history, we assume that it is an appropriate response if someone is actually persecuting you that you can fight back, that you can uh, curse those who persecute you. It's even encouraged. And kids that are here today, if you're on the playground and somebody says something nasty to you or maybe even hits you or harms you physically in some way, what's, how, how are you supposed to respond? How does, it, how does that make you feel? How do you feel like responding if somebody hits you when you're playing a game? Not very good, right? Is it... Is it okay for you to be nasty in response? What if somebody calls you a nasty name? Are you allowed, are you permitted to call them a nasty name in response? It would be the most natural thing in the world to do, right? Someone says that you're stupid, tell them they're stupid back. It may be natural, but God says that we should bless those who persecute us. As I was preparing to preach, I thought of the infamous duel between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. Their duel was in 1804, and duels at the time were fairly common. And then, uh, they were all about honor, right? Um, And so, it may not have been actual persecution that led to that duel, um, but I can assure you that Aaron Burr, uh, who wanted the duel... Uh, believed he had been persecuted unjustly, right? So um, we take offense, and in that case, someone died as a result. Now, we may not have duels today, at least not very often, uh, but, and things may be different in our technological age in some ways, but human beings are not different. And so we think that our road rage is justified. We think that when we're on social media... Uh, that it's totally justified to empty both gun barrels on somebody 
at the slightest provocation, right? It doesn't take hardly anything at all for us to feel offended. Immediately we feel offended when somebody crosses our path and we feel justified in responding in a nasty way. We also justify our grievance politics in the very same way, right? It used to be, I, I thought, uh, that grievance politics, or however you want to call that, that uh, was a thing on the left. But it seems clear to me nowadays that it's both sides. There's plenty of it to go around on both sides. Our country is very divided right now, and there's a lot of very tense, difficult animosity. Right? We feel this. And so we feel justified in cursing our political enemies. The, uh, the phrase, let's go Brandon, you've heard this? If you don't know what that is, I'm not going to explain it to you. Um, but what is that actually? What's going on there? It's a curse. It's a curse. Are we justified in cursing our enemies? No, we're not. We're not. Still, there's a kind of reasonableness to it, right? I mean, after all, what's so bad about the, the, the instinct to self-preservation, right? You feel attacked. Um, you might say, okay, fine, you know, pastor, you got me on the road rage thing. Someone cut me off a little bit. That's not persecution. I'll grant you. It's not persecution. And so my anger at someone cutting me off is not justified. You're right. Uh, but actual persecution, actually being attacked for what is for doing what's good and right, surely we're permitted to retaliate and to curse someone who does that, right? Well, you could retaliate and curse someone for doing that, uh, and of course the whole world would nod with you and agree with you. Yeah, you're right, you go, that's right. He, he hits you and you're fully permitted to hit him back. But what is the example that Christ has given to us, his church? In Philippians chapter 2, it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And again in Romans 5, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Brothers and sisters, being willing to suffer persecution meekly is the example of our Lord. It is the example that we have been given. When you signed up as a Christian, this is what you signed up for. Right? This is what you signed up for. You cannot be a claim to be a Christian without making some progress down this path. Are you willing to bless those who persecute you? Persecute you. Now we can all see that our culture is less and less tolerant of the Christian faith, right? You know, this is obvious. You'd have to be blind not to see it. And so if you're convinced that more persecution is coming, maybe you, you, you see headlines and news articles, you're you're eager to read them about the persecution that's happening now, 
and you anticipate more persecution coming, how are you preparing for it? How are you preparing for that persecution? Are you stocking up on guns and bullets? Are you prepping for the end of civilization? Or are you preparing yourself in your own mind to bless those who persecute you? Trust me, if you haven't given any thought to that, uh, you're not going to get it right the first time. You know, you're, you're probably going to whiff it at your first at-bat. If, if, you know, very... If you've not been persecuted before, the first time it happens, what do you think your first reaction is going to be? It's going to be like everybody else's first reaction, right? It's going to be self-defense. It's going to be attacking. So your first reaction, your first natural reaction will be to fight back. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our minds immediately go to excuses, my rights, my honor, you know, and we search for scenarios that justify us in our retaliation, in our cursing. You know, you think of all kinds of scenarios that I'm not going to get into, you know, about protecting my family or my property or uh, do, I just ha do I really just have to let them come and walk all over me? Well, I do want to say one thing about this, and this is a little bit of a tangent, um, but uh, no, this command is not uh, commanding you to allow a thief to come in and just steal your stuff, right? That's not what this is commanding you. And I, and I want to say uh, something to fathers in particular about this. Okay, I want to speak to fathers in particular. Uh, it's a little bit of a tangent, but, but hear me out. I think that there's a modern psychosis. We're like our, uh, about this very thing. Our, we're really, really deeply, profoundly screwed up uh, when we think about this. Because these days, uh, authorities everywhere are flat out refusing to make judgments and to discipline offenders. So, for instance, in the civil sphere, you might say that the removal of the death penalty for particularly heinous crimes is one example of that in the civil sphere, right? But the examples abound in the church and in the home as well. Elders will simply refuse to discipline notoriously wicked men or men who teach a false gospel. And fathers, 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 listen to me, are willfully naive and blind uh, about their own homes, right? When a young boy comes around and is interested in your daughter, are you paying attention to what's actually going on? Or are you willfully naive and foolish? Are you going to care for your daughter, or your son for that matter, in that process of looking for a husband or a wife? Or are you just going to act like it's just going to happen? <laughs> I'll tell you what will just happen, right? Everybody knows what's going to happen. Authorities these days regularly cover over their failures and their abdication. Fathers, we cover over our failures and our abdication by simply calling for the wounded party to forgive and to turn the other cheek. It's an effective ploy because there is actually a grain of truth in it. The wounded party, you know, if, if you're sinned against, you have to learn to forgive if you're going to be free of however, you know, way you were sinned against. This is, this is not uh, probably new to any of you. Uh, no matter how painful the sin you know, you're going, to be in you're going to be chained to it as long as you're incapable, unable to forgive. 
So there's, there's truth in this. Um, but that doesn't mean that those in authority have a right to forego justice. On the contrary, they have a duty to uphold it. So fathers, you may not be lazy as you raise your children. Um, you are responsible to sort out with your children. Uh, you are responsible to bring peace into your home, right? If you got people in your home, you know that you're going to have conflict. And if you have conflict, you as a father are responsible to bring peace. You're responsible to make judgments and to bring peace in your home. Romans 13 says, For it is a minister of God that is authority, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And it's very interesting there. It uses the word avenge, right? And it's interesting because just earlier in Romans 12, verse 19, uh, we're commanded not to take revenge. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And it's very troubling to me to see in our popular culture today that we are filled with movies and music and entertainment that glorifies vengeance, right? It glorifies vengeance. And, you know, there's all kinds of justification for it. Maybe even the justification that the authorities are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And it may be true that authorities aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, but that does not mean that vengeance is yours. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We, in our interpersonal relationships, are explicitly forbidden to take vengeance. So, Pastor Bailey is going to preach on the end of Romans 12 soon. You'll hear him discuss those verses some more. But my point in our, for our passage today is that in our interpersonal relationships, I'm not talking about authorities, you know, ruling and making judgments, I'm talking about interpersonal relationships, we are not to curse. We are to bless. And again, um, let's be honest, right? When we think of various justifications uh, for taking vengeance, we're doing just that. We're just trying to justify ourselves. We're trying to justify our own sin. Um, What we're actually talking about is being mocked or shunned in your family or in your work, right? We're talking about being overlooked, maybe for a job promotion or put down. It is going to be painful. It is painful to be persecuted. There's no, no question. Like, there's real cost to it. The Apostle Paul, in, you know, was not, uh, he was not, uh, he knew about the cost of being persecuted. And so he's not oblivious to that fact. There is a real cost. But when it comes right down to it, it has to do, uh, the question is, are you willing to die to your pride? And are you willing to trust God with your life? Right? Are you willing to suffer persecution with your head bowed instead of with your fist raised? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. It goes on, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Again, this is another command that is entirely unnatural. Notice the command is not simply for you to rejoice or to weep. 
It's not like it's commanding you just to have emotions. But I want to pause there for a second because I think we should talk for a minute about emotions. Some of us uh, are inclined to be uh, good Buddhists rather than good Christians, right? We think that it's godliness to take our emotions and put them in a box and lock them up and stick them in a cave buried deep in the ground and throw away the key. Um, But that's not right. That's not right. Christians are supposed to feel things, and not only are you supposed to feel things, I mean, it sounds a little silly, I know, but I'm telling you, uh, I, think it's, I think we need this reminder. Uh, not only are we supposed to feel things, but our emotions and our thoughts are supposed to run along the same lines, right? Both our emotions and our thoughts need to be trained and taught to, to, to move in the same direction. A lot of people favor one or the other. You know, some are more thinking-minded, some are more feeling. But in both emotions and thoughts need to be trained to move in the same direction. And, and that's not easy, right? It takes the renewal of our minds. Some people bottle up their emotions because they feel like they're so out of control that that's the only way they know how to handle them. And so it's terrifying to let, their emotion, let an emotion see daylight. Um, so, Christians, don't be afraid of emotions. Emotions, thoughts, thinking, feeling, they need to go together. They need to exist in a person. But that's not actually what's being commanded here. What's being commanded here is for us to go a step further. Not only are we supposed to like, be in touch with our own emotions, right? That's the first step. But this verse is actually commanding us uh, to love others in such a way that we are able to identify their joys and their sorrows as our own. We are being commanded to enter into the joys and the sorrows of others. It talks about rejoicing and about... Uh, uh, about weeping, right? The highs and the lows and everything in between. We're commanded to love others and to enter into their emotions as if they are our own. And boy, do we have a way to get around this, right? We have lots of ways of getting around this. Uh, we can be cold as ice towards others even as we make a show of loving them. There's lots of ways to do this, right? You can make a a big show of serving somebody even as you hate them. You can make a big point of spending time with somebody even as you are completely loveless toward them. How many couples have been on a date that was completely icy, right? Where all the ceremony happens but none of the love. You know, you pick a restaurant and you, you go and Uh, You order food and you eat it and you pay the bill and maybe there's even chit-chat. All of that, but there's no love. There's no rejoicing with those who rejoice. There's no weeping with those who weep. There's no love. And I don't think this is a command that's just for us in the church, right? You're not commanded here just to love others here in the church, but how are you supposed to love your neighbor if you're incapable or unwilling to rejoice with them and weep with them. You can't do it. 
I think it's very easy for us uh, to overlook our children in this regard as well, right? The pains and sorrows of a child and the, and the joys of a child often just seem so silly to us as parents. You know, you turn the light off and they're afraid, or you drop them off in the nursery and they're afraid, or, you know, they get super excited. Um, I was going to say food, but I get pretty excited about food too, so, <laughs> you know. They get, they get excited about a toy that just seems, you know, silly to you. Um, but do you love them? Are you able to enter into their joys and their sorrows? And of course, as they get older, they have different joys and sorrows. You know, anyone remember middle school or high school? You got really high highs and really low lows. And even then, a lot of times as adults, you know, some of the things seem almost silly, like, Really, that's really not that big of a problem. But as parents, we need to work to enter into the joys and the sorrows of our children. And kids, if you're still with me here, any kids in here? Good, good. You can do this too. You can do this too. You can tell when someone is feeling happy or sad, right? You can tell when your brothers and sisters are excited or are happy or sad. You can probably even tell if your parents are happy or sad. What do you do, for instance, when your sister gets to go on a cool trip that you don't get to go on? You know, are you excited about that? Are you excited for her? Or does that make you feel sad and grumpy, you know? If you're going to love your siblings, you should be happy for the things that, that, that give them joy and sad, and, and, and you can be sad with them if they're sad. You, you can love your siblings. You can enter into their joys and their sorrows. So what keeps us from obeying this command? What keeps us from entering into the joys and the sorrows of others? Start with the obvious things. You know, we, we have anger or resentment or bitterness, you know, uh, those things certainly keep us from entering into joys and sorrows of someone else. Maybe you're angry at someone in particular, and so instead of blessing, you curse. And if it's someone in particular, it's probably, uh, probably true that it's someone you see every day. You know, your boss or your husband or maybe your brother or sister. Um, but maybe you've gotten to the point where you're just kind of angry and bitter at everyone. You know, you're just an angry, bitter person. You've grown hard-hearted and loveless. That'll keep you from entering into the joys and sorrows of others. Could be pride. You're not concerned with the people that seem like they're beneath you, right? And again, this is something that uh, parents have to be careful of, right? It seems silly. Uh, We think the joys and cares of our children are just silly. And so they're not worth our time of day. But there are people all around you that you're tempted to think like this about. And we can't do that. It could be fear. You know, you've been hurt before and you don't want to be hurt again. This is super common, obviously. Uh, Maybe you're so desperate for acceptance and honor from other people that you cannot stop for one second to think about somebody else. Right? You're so gripped on thinking about yourself and where you land in the pecking order that you are incapable of thinking about somebody else. Again, children, you know, sibling rivalry. Is sibling rivalry a thing? It's a thing, right? 
Do you want to prove that you're better than your brother or your sister? That you're faster or smarter or stronger? We are always trying to prove ourselves in front of other people. But can you enter into someone else's joys and sorrows if you're trying to prove that you're better than them? You can't do it, right? To be able to enter into someone else's joys and sorrows, to be able to love somebody else, you have to forget about yourself and think about them. It's rocket science, I know. And of course, this doesn't end with childhood, right? Adults, many, many a man goes to his grave proving that he was better than his father or his brother and unable or unwilling to enter into his joys or his sorrows. So what would it take for you to change? What would it take for you to let your guard down and enter into the joys and the sorrows of somebody else? Into the joys and sorrows of your husband or your wife or your parents or your next door neighbor? You know, one, one tempting thought here is uh, to think to yourself, well, okay, maybe the way to do that is to just not care what other people think of me. And um, maybe, maybe that would give me the freedom to, to enter into their joys and sorrows, to think about them rather than to think about myself. And it's, it's, it's tempting, and it's something you actually hear from the world quite a lot, right? You know, the world is constantly telling us this message. Our culture is constantly telling us this message that you're supposed to be different, you're supposed to stand out, you're supposed to uh, be weird and not care what other people think about you. <clears throat> Will that give you the freedom to love others? The answer is no. No, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty sneaky one, and it's tempting to, to buy into it, but the answer is no. And in fact, it's just another way to continue on in your lovelessness and in your fixation, frankly, on yourself, right? And it's a good example to bring up, though, because it highlights a mystery at the very center of the gospel. In these few verses, God is commanding us to do the very thing that will cause us maximum pain. He's not just commanding us to open our hearts, but he's commanding us to open our hearts to other people. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but other people aren't nice often. Other people will hurt you. But this is precisely what Christ has done for us. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. And of course, it's not just maximum pain, although there is pain, you will die. You know, you will, if you do this, if you obey this command or try to obey this command, you will be taking up your cross and following your Lord in being willing to suffer persecution and pain. But why did Jesus do it? He did it for the joy set before him, for the love that comes uh, because of the love of the Father. Right? The only way you will be able to do this is if you know the love of God through Jesus Christ. So as I said earlier, what's being commanded here requires a work of God. It requires us to be transformed by the love of God. 
Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. What does this mean? Uh, Does it mean that we should all think the same thing? That we should get on the same page? Or does it mean uh, that, is it just exhorting us to kind of brotherly kindness toward one another? What does it mean for us to be of the same mind toward one another? I spent a fair bit of time thinking about this, and and it's not entirely clear to me. Um, But I don't really think that you have to make a choice here between whether or not it means that we need to be on the same page in terms of what we think, or if it means that we need to uh, be brotherly and kind toward one another. Because I think that there has to be a little bit of both really happening. Uh, We do want to get on the same page as our brothers and sisters in Christ, but we should also be brotherly and accommodating. We should be uh, kind toward one another. We should not be pugnacious. What does it mean to be pugnacious? It means to be argumentative and quarrelsome. That is right out, right? We're not to be like that. And let me give an exhortation, especially to parents and teenagers here. Um, What would it mean for parents and teenagers to be of the same mind toward one another? What would that mean? Uh, What would it actually take for parents and teenagers to be of the same mind? What about husbands and wives? What about management and labor? As I was thinking about the answer to my own question, I, I think a very obvious thing came to mind, and I want to exhort you parents of teenagers in particular about this, and that is conversation, actually talking to them. And teenagers, you too, you need to talk to your parents, right? You need to talk to your parents. Uh, we, husbands and wives, need to talk to one another so that we can be uh, of the same mind. We as a congregation, as individuals in the congregation, need to actually talk to one another. This is why when you hear about home groups, you need to recognize that in this congregation, home groups are not some kind of like extracurricular thing. They are essential to our life together. They give us an opportunity to be of the same mind with one another, to actually fellowship and talk, spend time talking to each other so that we can uh, uh, be of the same mind with one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. As Christians, we should have a uh, predilection, a preference to yield to the honor of others rather than to take it away from them, right? We don't push ourselves to the front of the line we yield uh, to others. But um, it's interesting, do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Who exactly is the lowly? <laughs> Who are the lowly? And it's funny, it's kind of relative. I mean, there's a sense in which it's not relative. There's a sense in which there's certain categories of people that are lowly. You know, the poor are lowly. Um, but, you know, we all have different people that we look down on. You know, the, the artist is going to look down on the MBA or, uh, you know, again, you got management, labor, uh, brothers are going to look down on, uh, you know, the, the five-year-old is going to look down on the three-year-old and the 12-year-old is going to think that the five-year-old really isn't such a big deal. Um, we all 
have people that we look down on. And so let me ask you, is there somebody that you think is not worth your time and isn't worth talking to, isn't worth uh, giving any attention to? That's precisely the person you should give special attention to. I had someone after the first service come up and ask me, so like, does that mean if someone's talking to me that they think lowly of me? <laughs> I'll let them, you know, I'll let you sort that out. But my exhortation is that we need to love each other. And don't look down on people. Go and associate with them. And kids, don't look down on your little brother, your little sister. You know, love them. Be willing to play go fish with your little brother or whatever it is. Um, be tender-hearted toward your siblings and love them. This last phrase, uh, do not be wise in your own estimation, uh, is how the NASB translates it, but the King James Version says, be not wise in your own conceits. And I like that translation a little bit better because it, it pops the bubble just even a little bit more. You know, it's like, uh, you mean my thoughts? My estimation is just my own conceit? And the answer is yes. You know, we all tend to have an inflated sense of our own wisdom. And this also requires a transformation of your mind that is dependent upon the Holy Spirit and upon the power of God. And uh, there's another kind of sleight of hand that happens here. You notice that it does not say, do not be wise, right? It says, do not be wise in your own estimation. Uh, there is such a thing as wisdom, and we as Christians are commanded to get it. it, it is, wisdom is more precious than jewels or gold or a good name. It is more precious than your honor. And so, you know, there's a sleight of hand here that where people try to, try to say, well, you know, uh, try to convince you, they try to take a verse like this and convince you that there is no such thing as wisdom or that wisdom is relative or maybe that wisdom is impossible to get. And the truth is, it's difficult, but it's not impossible. We are commanded by God, by Christ, to grow in wisdom. But the reality is that as you grow in wisdom, you also, at the same time, uh, you grow in your own understanding of your lack of wisdom, right? Those, there's an inverse correlation between those two things. They, one goes one way, the other, thing, other one goes the other way. And so you have this interesting phenomenon where the person who is most wise is most willing to seek out the advice of others, the counsel of others. Whereas a foolish man is utterly and completely impermeable, unwilling to get counsel from other people, right? There are men like this in this congregation who are impermeable to advice, unwilling to, to hear what somebody else thinks or, or, or would say about a decision that they have to make or a direction they have to go, um, something they're thinking. Brothers, do not be impermeable. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Uh, women are the same way, right? 
rather than talk, talk it over with anyone else, and especially not your husband, you know what you want, you know how to get it, and you're going to charge forward and do it without getting any input. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recognize that you need help. You need the wisdom of other people. Uh, uh, you need input from others. Be not wise in your own conceits and be willing to hear from other people. Seek it out even, right? Seek it out. All of this that I've been talking about today requires that we be transformed by the renewing of our minds. It requires the power of God. And it requires pain on your part. Remember, I said earlier uh, that Christ has called us to this, and He's called us to suffering like He suffered. And why did He do it? Why did he do it? Why was he willing to be open to the pain of going to the cross on our behalf? He did it for the joy set before him. He endured the cross for the joy set before him. If we are going to be a people whose minds and hearts are turned to heaven and who are are waiting desperately, eagerly for the day when we will be with our Lord and Savior, we must follow in His example. And for the joy set before us, for the love that God has shown to us, we must be willing to love others and be willing to be hurt by them uh, so that we demonstrate the love of God to them in the way that Christ has loved us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray that you'd please help us in this. I pray that you would please transform our minds, renew our minds that we might be transformed. Father, we confess that we are no good at this, that we are quick to take offense, to be angry, to fight back, that we're quick to be quarrelsome, to think the worst of others. Father, we pray that you'd forgive us, and we pray that we would love others, that we would be willing to suffer and to be persecuted, to, to be sinned against without retaliating. Help us in this, Father, and we thank you especially for your love which you have given to us and shown to us through Christ Jesus. We pray as we go from here that you would fill us with that love. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.